I've been thinking this week about white supremacy. And, haven't uh, we all? Yeah, haven't we all? And I hope so. I, I really do hope that we are, we're all thinking about it because I think enough of us have been jolted into um, awareness, if not necessarily action, that I think uh, let's, let's start building on this like it's a platform. Uh, so one of the things that, um, you know, I, I can almost hear everybody um, listening to the episode, mm. you know, they were all ready for, you know, two, two white dudes to sit down and, and talk about random ideas. Um, and they're like, oh, crud. <laughs> um, this, this is an hour that's going to make me uncomfortable and, yeah. and feel terrible. Um, and, and honestly, that's actually not my goal. Um, I, I think that there's there's plenty of reason to feel terrible, but I also don't think that that gets anybody anywhere, um, because uh, at least in this particular case, uh, because what we need to be doing is looking at it, you know, it, set the blame aside, and look at what we've got right now. Um, there's an article that I read this week. Uh, it's super awesome. Uh, it's by uh, Ijoma Aluo, who writes for The Establishment. It's uh, an online, you know, one of those kind of medium publications. And uh, she's actually local to Seattle here, and I read a bunch of her articles. Uh, she writes really clearly, really well. And in this particular case, um, she's writing about, it's like, okay, so you've seen Charlottesville. You've kind of made your... your um, your kind of declaration of now I'm paying attention. So what do you want to do? You want to fight. And um, for me, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll have all the disclaimers. I'm a timid person. I'm an introvert. I'm an indoorsy. Uh, I will not go outside unless forced kind of thing. And so um, I am not likely to be the kind of person who will go out and, you know, punch Nazis or whatever the, the kind of, the kind of um, thing to do. Uh, is in that in that vein. However, um, uh, if I just sit at home, if I just kind of you know watch the whole thing on Twitter uh, unfold, I'm actually not uh, uh, using the power that I have. And so, this article actually talks about as a person in society right now, um, you know especially if you are a white person, that means that you're in a position of power. If you're a white male, even better, because you're doubly in a position of power. Um, and then uh, just recognize the kind of power that you have, the not just the privilege that you're given as, as white privilege, but um, also the, the power that you have to actually change the system that mm. we're in. So there was a bunch in there um, that I'd like to unpack over the course of this, but, uh, but that's pretty much what I would like to, to, to talk to. Yeah, I don't think that we need to um, prove some of the assumptions that we're making here, because um, there are a couple of assumptions. Um, first is that we are talking about white supremacy um, in in Charlottesville. Um, it's it, it. I mean, it, I've seen a lot of people say, "Well, you know, you you have to listen to what they're saying because you can't just label them Nazis." And, uh, and this week, um, uh, is it, is it Goddard's law, uh, that the longer an argument goes on, the more likely it is somebody will be, uh, compared to Hitler. Um, I, right. is it, his name? I can't remember his name now. John I'm Goddard. blanking, but it's, it's not Goddard. It's, um, 
But anyway, that law is is waived for these particular topics uh, because you are he he literally the the guy who coined the law um, tweeted, I, "I give you my blessing. These people are Nazis. Call them Nazis." Yes, exactly. So, you know, comparison to Hitler, comparison to Nazis, which is generally considered kind of pushing something that is, you know, a straight disagreement beyond the pale. Well, in this case, we are actually talking about things that are operating beyond the pale. So that's it's perfectly legitimate to to talk about that. Uh, One of the things that I did want to mention, though, is that the kind of the difference between because there are a lot of terms that get thrown around and and i i personally think that words have have meaning and mean a lot and uh the right choice of words can be important and so um let, let's talk about some of these these terms so nazi that's that's pretty straightforward we all have kind of that you know thing that we envision and it it's pretty dead on it's uh, somebody who um is uh, basically believes in armed conflict or violence in support of a fascist system that upholds uh, white supremacy. So it, 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 it has kind of that bundle of those things. Um, and those things can't be taken out. You can't say it's the Nazi that doesn't believe in violence. It, 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 those are, you know, right. mutually incompatible. Right. Now, um, there's fascism which is, again, a very well-defined term. Uh, we don't really have to deal with that here, but that's kind of that, that system of government or system of culture that will, you know, has uh, isolationism and nationalism uh, as its kind of core uh, tenets. Um, it uh, raises a strong military and then uses that military power on its own people um, to strongly enforce, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's built into kind of the, the, the Nazi point of view. It's why generally when you have, you know, kind of Nazis marching, they will be wearing military uniforms. Um, they will be strongly leaning toward violence, which is, of course, what gets into why Charlottesville was a problem is that you have somebody who, rather than peacefully assembling, are, you know, going to be doing that. So, but that's actually not what I want to be talking about today. So, Setting the Nazis aside for that's kind of what caught our attention. Yeah. Setting the fascism aside, which is also, you know, that's, that's the alarming thing because it's very, it's too easy for somebody sitting in a cafe outside on a, on a Saturday, um, to say, okay, well, you know, those Nazis are a problem, but now I'm going to close my phone or put it away and sit down in my cafe and, and I'm not doing those things. So, um, uh, there's then, um, there's white nationalism, which is kind of a, a relatively new term, which kind of blends into that same idea of, uh, basically somebody who, um, uh, agrees with white supremacy as a principle for kind of the culture that we are in or the government that we are in and which is to pursue that by whatever means um, in order to enshrine that in the culture. So um, white nationalism is the, the folks who are pressing to retain the Confederate statues, for instance. These are not things that are, you know, 
people are saying, oh, well, we, we have to have these Confederate statues because they represent kind of history. And if you remove them, then you're removing history. Well, the Confederacy was a state that was created specifically for the purpose of white nationalism um, to uphold white supremacy and specifically to uh, uphold the practice of slavery. And so they lost that battle. And as the losers of that battle, if you are holding them up, you know, literally putting them on a pedestal, hmm. you are saying that the thing that they were fighting for was noble. That's what we say. Uh, this is, I mean, the example that I think of is, you know, somebody who says, well, if, if you take down the Robert E. Lee statue, then you're erasing him from history. It's like, well, you, nobody would like complain about renaming Goebbels Street in New York. It's like, oh, but if you rename Goebbels Street, people won't learn the lessons of World War II. It's like, it's very easy to learn the lessons of World War II by looking in a history book that says, this is a person who was, you know, a Nazi jerk and was a propagandist for this, you know, this terrible regime. We're not going to put up a statue to that person because we understand that putting a statue up about of that, of that person who was on A, the losing side, and B, the wrong side, uh, is putting them on a platform. It's it's giving them prominence that they do not deserve, and so that 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 argument, you know, coming back to the the statues, that is white nationalism. It is you know basically trying to promote further the idea of white supremacy. So backing back down to what we can talk about today which is white supremacy. And this article goes into it really well, um, but I'll, I'll try to define it, you know, briefly, and you can, you can fill in the, the parts that I'm missing. But it is, A, it's a system that we are living in right now. So this is it. We're here. Uh, it is a system that was actively put in place for the benefit of us. And by us in this case, I mean I am... A white person. I am male. Um, now, patriarchy covers the whole male part. It, it's tied together. But as a white person, I am benefiting from a system that was put in place that places me without any reason at the top of that system. And I then have a whole set of benefits from being at the top of that that uh, that system, I also do not have to see a whole set of detriments by not being at the top of that system. Mm -hmm. And so this system exists. It is in place right now. It is in place both at a cultural level, at a political level. It is enshrined in our laws. You know, you're soaking in it. That's it's it's something that before we can move forward that is a thing that we have to acknowledge. Uh, any parts of that that I missed? No. And, and I'm going to say what you just said again, because maybe t having two voices say it will help yeah. it sink in. We cannot fight the rise of white supremacy because we are already in a, a, a white supremacy society. I mean, it, this is not something that we're looking to the future for. This is something that we are looking at the present and the recent past. I mean, you know, for the last 250 years, 
uh, and you know, farther than that. But I mean, this is what America is founded on. Is yeah, is that, white that's supremacy. an excellent point because that's another thing that that it has to be you know brought to the fore and, and acknowledged is that, like you said so beautifully, this is not something that we are fighting the rise of. It's not something that we are preventing. Where if we win a particular you know battle, then it means that it won't happen and we're all good. This is our default state right now. Mm-hmm. If we do nothing to change this, this is what we have because this is what we have put in place. Yeah. I, and that that's something that we as white people so often forget. And, it, you know, it's part of our privilege is, is that we're part of the problem and it, you know, it's something that we don't see. Like, I love that moment in uh, Parks and Rec where they – uh, call a government wide meeting, uh, to discuss, uh, sexual discrimination, um, and, uh, and the hiring of women as a policy. And every department is required to, um, send a representative or, you know, a certain number of representatives and everybody in the room during the meeting is all male. And Chris Traeger goes, well, I just assumed that that some people would send women. Oh my God, I'm part of the problem. And like, that's something that he was able to not see coming, even though, you know, somebody like Leslie would. And so it's really important for us as white people to remember that just because we don't see it and just because we're not affected by it doesn't mean this isn't the world that we're living in. Um, and it does not take you don't have to to grab a black person and twist their arm to hear these things. It doesn't take much to sit back and listen to um, what the non-white majority in this country is telling us that this is something that they deal with every day. Um, and we could pretty much make this entire hour just talking about that. Uh, and I don't think we would reach the beating a dead horse stage because it's something that is so hard for white people to understand. Yes. And that's, that, that brings up the, the excellent side point, which is, okay, you know, we, we are, you know, to give your example, the, the two white guys sitting and talking about this particular uh, this particular issue, and so the question comes up: It's like, wait, <laughs> you know, it, is it appropriate for us to be talking about this? It's, and the answer is yes, because right now what we're talking about is we are not talking about what a person of color needs to do or not do. Yes. We have already heard plenty about what the problem is, and it is absolutely 100% within our power to solve this problem. And at the same time, it's our work to do. This is not something that we can call on a person of color um, to come in and do this work for us, which, you know, quite honestly, is something that often happens. It's the, we, we place the burden on the person who is, basically being most affected mm-hmm. by by this so mm-hmm. if you know for instance you know black lives matter the the black lives matter movement should be a movement f- by everyone mm-hmm. because it is simply a case of here is a group of people in our society who are being treated in a way that none of us would put up with 
So if if I got into a car and drove and was pulled over and you know stopped by the police for whatever broken taillight or whatever and I got out of my car and was shot and you know I was unarmed I was shot and killed the default from everybody in my family all the people who I work with um you know all of the other people around me their default response to that would be that is unfair it is unjust and it is it's murder and so this is a, this is a thing i mean it's there's no question about that there's no like you know gray area it's like okay well but i had a broken taillight oh, okay but it, that doesn't prevent it from being murder it's you know oh but i had just had an argument with my family or i you know have been known to you know say terrible things on the internet none of those things are justification for that murder not not and, even you getting out of your vehicle during a traffic stop is justification yeah, and, and exactly and that's more than you know many examples but continue a- absolutely and and it's one of those things where again it's 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 very obvious if you place it in that context that there is absolutely no reason for this not to be considered murder and yet when you look at the actual like real facts of the case this has happened you know, I, I wish I actually knew the number. This would be a good number for me to know off the top of my head. But let's say just say dozens of times this year alone, mm-hmm. just so far this year, this has happened dozens of times. And in none of those cases, zero of those cases, has the police officer been prosecuted for murder, actually even disciplined to the point where you would imagine for, you know, at no time is the the response by the um the the police force by the the city by the legal system at no time has this been an appropriate response and so this is something that i don't i don't need to be a person of color in order to find that unconscionable but what ends up happening is because it is happening to black people then the assumption is that the people who need to be, you know, uh, protesting this must also be black people. And so if you have, say, a gathering, a a rally, you know, uh, let's say it happens in Seattle, because it did. It actually happened in Seattle. And there's a rally for that. And it happens in, you know, Westlake Center here in, in the middle of Seattle. And there's a group of people gathering and they say it's a Black Lives Matter rally. There's automatically in our brains this kind of assumption of the people who are going to be there. And quite honestly, the people who are who should be there are people like me. And there's there's no reason for for me not to be there because it's unconscionable and and should not be allowed to continue. So I don't even remember how I got there. <laughs> but but anyway, so Backing it way up to, you know, why this is this is a topic for um, uh, white dudes to cover. Oh, that's what it was. It's because we have already asked, and we almost assume, well, almost we do assume that people of color are going to be doing this work because people of color are the ones who are being affected by it. But the problem is that the people who are doing it are us. The people mm-hmm. who are doing it are white people. Mm-hmm. And so 
we're the ones who need to do this work anyway. And, and I'd like to give kind of a counter example. Um, so during, um, uh, early feminist movements, um, um, men were asked not to march with the women. Um, you know, men would come to, uh, come to these woman led organizations and say, what do we have to do to march with you? Like, when are you doing this? You know, what do you want us to wear? How do we respectfully march with you? And they were told, don't march with us, give us money, support us on the sidelines, but don't march with us. Um, and, and there's a very big distinction between that, um, where, um, the people who need representation, um, must represent themselves. Right. Um, Yes. There's a difference between that when, when the people with the power, the, the men, um, are being asked to step back and this instance where people with power, white people are being asked to step in. Um, this is not a moment when, um, black people and people of color, um, are, are saying, Hey, we need to do this on our own. We need to be recognized, um, as, as equal to white people. They're saying, Hey, stop killing us and stand up to those who are killing us. Um, yes. so it's not a rabbit trail. I really want to go down, but as while we're talking about why this is important for two white guys on the internet to talk about, um, there are instances where, um, where there are things that are not correct for us to be the leading voices of. And this is one of them. This is one where it's very clear, very cut and dry. People like us need to be the ones uh, making waves and, and we need to not rely on the oppressed to speak for themselves. I mean, obviously we need to amplify their voices and we can't tell right. them not to speak for themselves. We can't crush them again while quote unquote trying to, you know, save them or whatever. But yeah. um, we need to take responsibility in a very real and, and upfront way. Um, just like men do uh, in regards to feminism, we also need to stand up, but that's, that's a very different relationship. Yeah, and, and, and I think you make a really good distinction there, which is the difference between the authority, the representation, and the responsibility. So the authority in this case, the person you listen to to determine whether there is a problem is the person who is affected. Right. So when black people tell us, tell me, tell you, tell, tell anybody that there is a problem, that they are, that they are seeing this problem – it is our responsibility to believe them and to amplify them. It is not up to me to decide what somebody else's experience is. However, the responsibility for fixing that problem is mm -hmm. mine and is yours because th that's where it lies. The problem is, is ours. And so the problem is ours to fix. Uh, so, you know, we, so let's, you know, for today, we're going to take as assumed that people are telling us that there is a problem. There are a lot of people. It's a big problem. And so the now what is appropriate for us to discuss is what we can do to, to fix it, which is one of the reasons why I love this article, because it is laid out um, very nicely in terms of the areas where 
white supremacy expresses itself. And this is another place where it it's easy to like fall back into it. It's like it's Nazis marching every so often and that's where it expresses itself. Or it's in violence um, that happens in kind of a, a large scale way. Um, but because it is a system that we live in and benefit from, the the points of contact are actually a lot more ordinary. Um, and so I'm just looking at, you know, the, the titles from this article. It is in schools. It is at the workplace. It is where money flows. It is in politics. It is within our own families. It's within our social circles. And for each of these areas, we have we have work that we can do to improve in all of those areas, which is nice from my point of view, because that means it's like, okay, I can go to work and I can take these actions. It's not me, you know, out on the front lines with, you know, a shield and a mask on, you know, doing something that I ordinarily would never do. I can do this in my workplace. Um, and so workplace is actually what I was thinking about a lot this week. Um, it, uh, was also inspired a lot by the, the Google memo. So did, did you actually read the memo? Um, I read parts of it. No, I, I don't think I actually read the entirety of it. Did you? Nope. <laughs> nope. <All right>. so, <laughs> I, let me tell you, I did not have the emotional energy to do that this week. Uh, right. Exactly. And, and, <laughs> and I, I think it's, it's reasonable to talk about it without actually, um, reading the specifics of it. The, the, the particular cases I verified that they were true. And so I, I think, um, we, we can talk through them. Um, the, the Google memo and, and work is very important to me because I'm a, a manager at work. I have hiring decisions uh, over people. I decide who gets raises and who does not, who gets promotions and does not, who does what work, who's involved in which, you know, gatherings, that kind of thing. I have a lot of power to exert over people um, through uh, various phases of, of their career and their involvement with my workplace. And the the other interesting thing specifically for me is that I actually just completed a refresher training on upholding kind of um, mm. workplace workplace ethics mm. and that is ethics in terms of um, both the legal portions of it and also kind of our company's um, our own culture um, so our culture is on the positive side and our culture is something that's that's you know open to discussion so Specifically, I want to talk about the legal portion of it because I, this is where, for me, actually, the the Google memo and the response to it was black and white. It was super easy for me to come to because I've just had it drilled into me and I know exactly where that line is and why this particular conversation is well over it. So the Google memo um, brought up a, a couple of broad ideas and it was, you know, you know, some the the writer of the memo basically said that Google was um, uh, shutting down uh, conversations that could have been happening uh, due to those conversations being about um, whether there's a, a fundamental difference between women and men in terms of their ability to work in the workplace. There was kind of a, a shadow argument that if you read between the lines is also talking about um, 
similar uh, differences between um, uh, white people and people of color of, of various types. Um, so basically, the the biological argument is really what kind of this came down to, and it was presented in kind of a meta way, in this sort of we are not having this conversation, we are not allowing this conversation to happen, and it is you know doing some sort of harm. And then the conversation, the examples of the conversation were these biological differences exist, and these biological dif differences are. Um, relevant to, you know, the, the, the hiring process or, um, the promotion process. Um, because if you have two candidates, one of whom is male and one of whom is female, and you make a hiring decision based on that, then here's the biology to back you up, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the interesting thing about that is that from the point of view of this kind of this workplace and the response is that simply having that statement in a workplace memo, so, you know, again, defining the terms, a workplace memo is a communication that you're having within a work context with other people at work. So it can be two people in a break room sitting next to each other, and they're kind of, you know, they can be overheard because they're having this discussion in the workplace. It could be a group of people during a meeting having this as a side discussion. It can be posted on a bulletin board type system the way that it was with the Google memo. Having that discussion at work and stating openly that there is a difference and that, so I didn't worry, I haven't used the word so far, but that it is reasonable for one to discriminate immediately from a legal perspective places the person who has made that statement in jeopardy mm -hmm. because that person from then on any decision that they make, any decision that has any um, effect over somebody else's hiring, over their promotion, over their termination, um, that decision can be called into question because that person has stated that they are willing to discriminate. And so from the point of view of a company, if the company does nothing, just sits on that, lets the thing happen, that company is now also suspect. That company is now also in jeopardy of it being claimed that they used discrimination in hiring or promotion or firing, which is illegal. And that's one of those things that there's no gray. It's like, should we, you know, is it, is it diversity? Are we promoting something? We're not talking about promoting here. We're actually talking about the legality of the situation. It is illegal to discriminate on the basis of gender or race, period. Every state in the United States, it is baked into law. And the way that the court cases go is that if you have a court case and you have somebody who, say, was terminated, and that person can say that somebody involved in the termination process has expressed these views and that these views mean that that decision may have been influenced by, um, by discrimination and that the company did nothing to dissuade those views, counteract those views, 
um, basically take action against those views, you know, being uh, produced to the, the, the company as, you know, kind of conversation, that the company is also liable to that. The jury cases in that are very strong. It is the kind of thing where you can have something where the all of the evidence is is really weak, but then something like that comes out. This memo exists. The company did nothing about it. The jury takes that as a tip of the iceberg sort of situation and says, well, if it can happen mm. here and no response happens to it, then in the absence of other evidence, we're going to assume that it happened all the time. Mm-hmm. Which is actually a fair assumption, right? You just kind of you know stepping aside from the legality, and they will immediately cite uh, side in favor of the um, the uh, um, the plaintiff, which means that Google in this particular case, the minute this memo went out, they had a very clear course of action. It wasn't a decision; it was a very clear course of action, because if they did not take action against the memo by basically stating clearly, this is not what we do. We will not tolerate even talking about this as, as a potential. And this person, you know, we've taken action against this person. Now, firing is one of those things where if you can show that it was, you know, not premeditated, premeditated if it was like a, a random conversation that somebody was happening and it just got out of hand, that kind of thing. But this is somebody who put obviously a ton of thought into this and questioned the company's own ability to make a decision about this. And so it would be very hard for them not to just fire that person because anything but firing means that you're you're not dealing with it, you know, decisively enough. And so at that point, they didn't have a choice about uh, firing. And if they hadn't fired, they were opening themselves up to tens or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of lawsuits. And that guy was probably not worth any of that. If you say, are you worth us losing $10 million? Are you lose, worth us losing you know, 50 or $100 million? Because with Google, it can become a class action suit. Google has to look at that and say, nope, bye. And so from my point of view, getting back to my workplace, is I actually sat down at lunch with my team and it came up. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, what do you think about this Google memo? And I laid it out just like that. Mm -hmm. I said, even if you have this conversation and at any point you present yourself, because one of one of the things just to back up is that there's kind of this oh you know we're just talking about it and it's like well actually no you're presenting your viewpoint on this and if you present your viewpoint on this basically saying that racial or sexual discrimination could be a fine thing to do what you're doing is you know i know that tomorrow or the next day you're going to go into an interview and you're going to interview a candidate and that candidate now is is going to be affected by your viewpoint. And so if you're showing that you have this bias, I can't send you into that interview. Well, I need to be able to send you into that interview. So if I can't send you at that in, into that interview, you can't do your job. If you can't do your job, you're going to leave. And, and so I kind of walked them through all of these places. It's like, 
there's no such thing as random idle conversation about a subject like this mm. at work because it is you're talking about something that you're talking about the possibility of illegality and questioning whether the company can determine that it should not do illegal things. And uh, I would take that one step further and say that there is no <laughs> idle conversation about something like this anywhere. Um, even in a room full of white men, uh, Talking about this without having very clear conclusions being drawn immediately um, affects everybody in that room, even if there aren't uh, uh, racial or sexual minorities uh, in that room to go, oh, I don't feel safe here. Um, just having uh, a room full of white men talking about that and going, eh, maybe this is something that we should discuss as a possibility instead of saying this is something that we need to condemn and here's how we condemn it. Um, the, yeah, the, absolutely. And it's the, funny I'm, because the, the title of the memo was Google's ideological echo chamber. And like, that's exactly what a bunch of white men standing around talking about this with no observers. If they're not condemning it, it's an ideological echo chamber that only reinforces their own, uh, I mean, sorry, guys, idiotic belief that this is something that's that's true. Um, right. It, it's exactly. only ever harmful. And that and that's really what it comes down to is that. If you go a little bit in that direction and the default is already a little bit in that direction, then you're going the whole way in that direction. And that's, I think, what this kind of workplace, you know, even sticking with legality uh, point of view uh, is, is, is talking about, is that going a little bit in that direction means that you're reinforcing a bad situation that already exists. Mm. And so... Again, it, it does require you to understand that you're soaking in it. This mm -hmm. is the default state. If we do not hold vigilant against this idea, then we are going to easily just roll straight downhill mm -hmm. into it. And rolling straight downhill into it in, in the workplace sense, in the hiring sense, means you're rolling straight down, you know, into illegal practices that you're going to get, you're going to get called on. But if we come back to, you know, our original premise for this episode, which is we have acknowledged that we need to dismantle white supremacy, that we have work to do in order to move in the other direction. We have to keep moving in the other direction. Our, our vector has to be off away from white supremacy. Otherwise, even if it feels like we're standing still, we're going to be sliding right into it because that's where we are. And so once we've made that decision, that decision also implies all of these things in, mm. like you said, in mm. all of our conversations. If you are standing in a conversation, like you said, and first of all, if you're having discussion about, you know, biological differences, which is one of those things where it gets really close to, um, 
Well, I mean, it is a dog whistle, quite a, quite honestly. It's basically just stating something in different terms so that you don't recognize you're having the dangerous conversation. Mm-hmm. When you're standing there and having that, that conversation, the only response is, like, at this point, a vocal response in the other direction. There's mm-hmm. there's no kind of hanging back. Uh, I'll, I'll give a, a random example that's that's kind of like this. So... When um, uh, my child was, uh, what was he? He was like one and a half or two. He had um, uh, picked up, oh, so we, we have cats. And uh, from the cats, well, actually, I'll back up even further. He would chase the cats around like a toddler does. And he decided that um, to pet the cat, you would kind of swipe at it. Mm. <laughs> kind of like pat at the cat in that kind of, you know, toddler can't really control movements yeah. kind of way. And the cats would just like, you know, rake at him with their claws mm. because they would be backed in a corner and rake at him. Well, you know, he would, of course, he'd get scratched. He would cry. And we would be like, well, you know, it's, we're very sad that you're getting hurt by the cat, but it's, it's because you're backing him in a corner and they're going to scratch you if you do this. Well, the interesting thing about it, that is that he picked that up himself. Mm-hmm. And so if we were doing something that he didn't like, like picking him up or whatever to, <laughs> to you know, we, we have to go pick you up, he would scratch us <laughs> like the cat would. <laughs> Wow. By the way, human fingernails, not something you want scratching in their skin. Uh, especially like, uh, toddler fingernails. Oh, yeah. First, like the worst injuries from that. I think I still have some of the scars. Oh, wow. And so we were like, wow, how do we get him to stop doing this? Because we just impressed on him that this is what the cat does. And that's kind of, you know, what it is. So um, I don't even remember where we, we discovered it. But um, we learned that part of what can happen is we have this kind of adult urge to kind of hold it in. If we get harmed, we don't immediately like scream our heads off, especially if you're if you're being harmed by your child. Your child just harmed you. You don't go, ah, what did you just do? Um, you kind of hold it in. It's like, oh, you know. That really hurt. And the problem is that they also have a two-year-old brain. And a two-year-old brain needs really strong stimulus to figure out that there was something wrong. And so the recommendation in this case was, if he's scratching you, yell. Mm. Not like, you scratched me, but more like, ow, that really hurts. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it feels like play acting. It, it feels really unnatural every single time it also feels really mean <laughs> right because i'm yelling out because this little kid just scratched me yeah it feels manipulative um, yeah, yeah exactly um scratching and biting were the the two that i've heard that this you know, is relative to but what it does is it is the appropriate response mm. with the knowledge that it, it really is a terrible thing to do it's not something that you want to hand your child to somebody else and rake them i mean that's no and at the same time you're 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 being appropriate with what the real harm is and so if i'm standing in a room and somebody's like 
her, 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 you know, racial slur or, you know, those people with their things that mean that I can't do what I want to do. I have to, like, my default response to that has to be that same thing. I have to say, so those people? It's like, what are they asking for? You know, I'm going to dig into this. You're, you know, you're worried about um, what now? Uh, like, you know, body cameras. That That's one of those things that's come up with, with, you know, police oversight. And it's like, oh, now, you know, police can't do their job because for those people. It's like, well, what are those people asking for? They're asking to not die when stopped for a, a traffic stop. Is that unreasonable? And I have to say that out loud. And I have to say that to a coworker or a family member. And that is, it's really, really hard work for me because the last thing I want to do is have somebody who's having a random conversation around me suddenly dislike me. Right. I mean, I really don't want that, but you know, it's what I got to do because the other the other alternative is that I say nothing, and everybody who's within earshot of that, including the person who said it, mm-hmm. think that that's a perfectly fine thing to say. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The white supremacy train just rolled down the tracks a little further. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got a bullet point that I added here while you were while you were talking, um, and, and the bullet point reads: avoiding thought crime. And mm-hmm. I, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying uh, how do we avoid committing thought crime. It's how do we avoid how how do we avoid making thought crime a problem? Um, and, and of course, this is a a, a very specific term that's well defined um, in, in uh, what is it? Uh, ni- 1983, 1984. 1984. 1984. I mean, it's, it's very specific what thought crime means and, and how the word developed. But I, I want to be careful because a lot of, uh, oppressors, let's be clear, oppressors, um, find or they, they object to, um, having their speech limited. Um, so, so like that workplace discussion, uh, where, you know, people are kind of going, okay, well, is this something that we can consider? Is this something that's okay to talk about? Um, it, it, it might sound like we're trying to enforce thought crime, uh, by saying you can't have this discussion and you can't think about racial issues, uh, and be a, you know, be a good white male and fall into line under your, you know, your, your black superiors or whatever nonsense. Uh, and they will literally throw that kind of language at you. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and I want to be really clear that, um, uh, like you said, um, it is highly, highly, highly unlikely that when your coworkers want to talk about the Google memo, uh, or, or when your friends want to talk about the Google memo, um, that, that this is coded speech for, uh, for more racist language. Um, and so when, when you, when we're encouraging people, um, 
people on the high end of this power gradient, um, when we're encouraging people to uh, do that, that dramatic, ow, ow, you scratched me, we're not saying that you can't talk about the Google memo. We're not saying that you can't go do research and figure out why uh, the idea of this biological difference is a bad thing. Um, and, and we're not saying that there, you know, that we shouldn't consider the differences between men and women and the differences between uh, white people and black people um, b- because there are um, what we're saying is that when it comes down to it, no matter what those differences are, um, I mean, in a very rigorous scientific way, we can say that more the more diverse a group is, the more successful it is. Um, and we, we see that in every, uh, every definition of group and every definition of diversity. Um, in every case, uh, the more diverse your group is, the stronger it is. So, um, we're not trying to police thought crime. We're not trying to tell you, you know, here are the topics that it's okay for you to think about. And here are the topics that it's okay for you to discuss. And here are the topics that it's okay for you to learn about. We're not saying that you need to remain ignorant on things. We're not saying that you need to take things for granted. What we're saying is listen to the actual words that are being spoken and, um, and understand that our differences are our strengths and that if, if we have discussions about things like the Google memo and don't stand against it, we're not, uh, ha- we're not having an innocent discussion. Um, and, and yeah, I know I, yeah. I'm getting close to beating a dead horse. I know I'm saying this over and over from different perspectives, but it's super, super important. This is. is only going to hurt you. Uh, it, it is only a bad thing. And so the only response is to cry out and use your, uh, use your power gradient mass, throw your weight around and, and yes. make it obvious that this is not acceptable. Yeah. And, and I think that, that, that gets into a really interesting area, which is so freedom of speech is often, you know, brought into play mm. in this. That, that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the flip side of, of the, the thought crime uh, argument. And I, I do, I want to be really clear about this, is that we're generally talking about speech as a predictor of action mm. and action itself. Mm. So speech as a predictor of action, that, that's another thing that came up at work. So at work, we're a very strong safety culture we make things in a manufacturing environment and you know we might uh, say have a process that produces some unsafe material and we take great care in order to store that unsafe material so that we are not you know harming the people at work who are working on this thing I'm using vague terms because I can't actually talk to anybody <laughs> about the specifics. But, you know, walk with me for a sec. So, you know, we have this stuff that is dangerous stuff, and we put it into a safe container. And we have very specific rules around how that, you know, safe containment happens. And we know that the reason for that is so that people don't get harmed. 
Now, if we have somebody who gets together and says, I don't understand why we have to take all of these safety precautions. Why should we label the thing? Why should we put the thing in a safe container? You know, we, we spend so much time and effort on this. We could go so much faster at, you know, building widgets or whatever if we didn't take this, this realm. Well, it sounds like that's this super reasonable kind of like, hey, what if sort of argument, but that's very dangerous speech in a, in like, not that the speech itself is dangerous, but it is speech about a dangerous mm. action. Mm. And the response to that has to be, well, I understand what you are saying, but we are not going to do this because we know that these things are all necessary for safety. If that person then responds with, well, you say that these things are all necessary for safety, but I think something different. Mm and I have the right to think what I think, the only response is then to shut that person down. Mm -hmm. It's not even that, you know, it's like, hey, let's continue, let's agree to disagree. Because agreeing to disagree means that if that person then goes and takes an action that's in violation of those safety protocols, and then something happens and somebody gets harmed by that stuff, that, that speech was now a predictor of those actions. And let's just take the legality out of it. If you know that that speech could be a predictor of those actions, then you can't uphold it as kind of like some principle of, well, you know, I will defend to the death. You're right to say that we shouldn't be safe here. You have to say you're espousing a belief that says that you're not going to take these actions that are required for safety. In fact, you're going to take unsafe actions. And so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep you out of the place where you can take these actions. And this is, I think, the big difference between kind of the thought crime aspect or, or like the usual freedom of speech art, uh, argument. Because there's always been, even in the United States, with our kind of, you know, enshrining it in the, in the Bill of Rights, there's always been a very obvious um, and, and well-defined uh, exemption to freedom of speech. And that is which, uh, that's when your speech is inciting action or directly predicting action that is then dangerous. So if you go into a crowded theater and you shout fire, that's not freedom of speech anymore. That is you taking an action and inciting those people to essentially riot. If you stand up on a stage in front of a large group of heavily armed people and say, let's go, you know, attack that building. Mm. It's not free speech anymore. It's not the government, you know, shutting down your ability to state, hey, wouldn't it be fun to attack buildings? You know, or here's how I would attack a building if I had to attack it. Because obviously that kind of entirely theoretical or hypothetical situation has to happen. It's called wargaming. Sometimes I have to pretend to be the bad guy in order to understand how, you know, to protect against it. And there's, you know, there's a really weird area where people have been, you know, arrested, have been sued, have been imprisoned for acting the bad guy when not actually wanting to to threaten. We could talk about that in a whole other episode. But in this particular case, if I get up in front of a group of people and I say, Hey, everybody with, you know, guns, let's go march down the street 
to the place that I know that, you know, to the synagogue and, you know, show them what's what. If you are, you know, a person in that crowd and you have, and other people have a reasonable expectation that you know exactly what that means and that that is a call to action and that that call to action will cause you to then harm another person, then that speech is harm. That speech is a call to action and that action is harmful. And at that point, that's when, that's where we defend against. Now, it gets, it gets tough and you have to be thinking about it. It's like, how far back do you get before you know that it's, you know, this speech is going to call for that action? It's like, well, let's say you've got somebody who is going to speak, is going to stand up at a podium, and, you know, nine out of the last ten times they got up at a podium in front of a group of armed people, they called for some kind of violence. Well, you can say that that's a fair predictor, that they're going to stand up at that next podium and do the same thing. And that's enough. That's enough to basically say, look, I'm not going to defend that person's right to get up and speak at a podium. Because generally when they speak up at a po- speak at a podium, they're calling for somebody to do harm. Now there's an interesting, like weird area here where, okay, let's say you've got somebody who comes and speaks at a podium and nine times out of the last 10, when they come and speak at that podium, the crowd then attacks them or attacks each other. Because now they're saying something like, Hey, everybody, Black Black Lives Matter. And half of the crowd now attacks the other half of the crowd. Well, you have to determine. It's like, well, did the one half of the crowd attack because the statement told them to? Or because of some other thing that they are being, you know, led to do? It, it Was it causative or just a correlation? And that's where, like, the whole kind of thought crime thing goes in where you can basically say well i was just talking about the hypothetical of this particular situation somebody else decided of their own will to put it into action you have to decide whether one of them was causative to the other or you know probable of probable cause yeah well so it's interesting because um Um, standing up in front of a a diverse crowd and saying black lives matter. If half of the crowd attacks the other half, it is almost certainly going to be the white people attacking the black people. Exactly. If you stand up in front of a crowd and say, uh, blue lives matter, the half that's going to be attacking might be black people or it might be white people. Um, and, and if it's the black people attacking, it's the black people feeling endangered and taking a, um, a preemptive strike um, or taking a retaliative strike and saying, Hey, we are important. We are people. You cannot say something like blue lives matter, which is in this instance, the same as saying yelling fire in, in a theater. Um, it, it, it's really weird because what happens after you say a thing matters as much as whether the thing happens or not. Um, yeah, and 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 that's that's a really that's a good point as well. Is somebody who gets up and 
says things that are incendiary for the purpose of, you know, basically inflaming somebody who has, you know, been, you know, I, I hate using phrases like this, but they're so, they're actually appropriate under the boot of oppression. Mm. Then you have to understand that the words themselves can actually be doing the harm in that case. And the harm that then comes back, it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. I say a terrible thing to you. You, you know, take a swing at me. That's one of those places where the swing is actually, you know, any, again, a rational person looking at that can say, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, There's, uh, you've, I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. The, the awesome film Hidden Figures. Mm. Oh yeah, of course. And there's the, the point where, um, it, it shows the kind of the, the structural difference, where, um, uh, Catherine Johnson, you know, in order to go to the bathroom, has to run halfway across the campus, and so, she, you know, basically takes her work with her. She does all of these things to, to make sure that she's not wasting that time uh, even though it's it's not her fault that her time is being wasted and one day she comes back and her boss who cannot even envision this problem that she is having every single day basically says why is it that you're gone so much you know why are you gone so long and she loses it and the thing is, she loses it in a way where she is describing to him exactly what is happening. Now, she is doing it while yelling, and I don't remember the exact scene, but, you know, probably crying. You know, she's becoming more emotional than one would expect at work. She is yelling at her boss. She is, you know, um, you know, in any other circumstance, it would be perfectly reasonable for her to start swearing at him to express all of this anger and frustration that's building up. And at that moment, that is an appropriate response. Now, if one of her, you know, uh, white coworkers had the exact same response in the exact same time, it would be way over the line and it would be not unreasonable for them to be fired. And so there has to be that understanding that, when you press somebody mm. to the ends of their endurance just so that they can, you know, do the thing that they want to do and they snap and retaliate, they're, it's reasonable. It's mm-hmm. entirely reasonable. And it's entirely reasonable even if it's a circumstance that you ordinarily wouldn't understand. This comes up in my workplace. I mean, not specifically my workplace, but the kind of tech workplace with um, daily microaggressions mm. and, um, again, systemic racism or sexism, that if you have somebody who is daily putting up with microaggressions, um, uh, a, a hostile workplace, uh, you know, constant kind of, you know, um, little taps of, of problem, that person is... There's no reason not to believe that they should not be on edge all of the time. And that any one of these things that ordinarily would seem small is going to push them over the edge. And that retaliation is, again, perfectly reasonable. And so, again, in that that area of it's like, well, you know, 
as a, a person in the workplace, um, as a white person in the workplace, as a manager who is, is a white male in the workplace, I then have to understand if there is a person who is my employee or my coworker and I say something that seems totally innocuous, but it sets them off, then it could totally be because of that. I mean, I mean, hell, with um, the uh, the the problem with police shootings. So, if you get into your car in the morning after reading a whole story about how somebody like you in their car on the way to work was shot for no reason and killed, and there's nothing that anybody can do about it because everybody just throws up their hands, you get in your car and you drive to work. That is now going to be an incredibly stressful experience. And let's say you've been hearing that week in and week out for the entire year and for year after year. And so every day when you get in your car and you come to work, you have that feeling. You get to work, you're not bright and chipper and talking about coffee and like, hey, let's get get going. You have already been messed with this morning. And so that's another thing that I, as a manager, have to pay attention to. Did some terrible thing happen somewhere in the world or even closer to home that for one or more of the people who are my employees or my coworkers basically is, you know, they're way over the edge now because of this, this circumstance. Um, this happened at my prior job where um, the, uh, the shootings in Miami at the, uh, the nightclub happened. And... I got into work and, you know, one of my employees uh, was friends with mm. some of the people who had been shot. Wow. And that was, you know, their community. And so I basically said, just take time. To, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to, to come into work after this and pretend like everything's perfectly normal. And that time was necessary. That wasn't like... Because if you had something, you know, similar to that, like, you know, 9-11, where everybody in the country is now feeling this, everybody on that team is like, you know, wow, I can't concentrate. I can't get my work done. We're all going to be talking about this the whole day. And everybody on the team can just naturally understand that because they're all in it together. But if it's one person on your team... You have to kind of step in at that point mm. and say, it's like, look, everybody around you is not going to get it, but I have to see this for you and, you know, go take that time that you need. So, and again, it, it at one, on you know, one side, it, it's like, oh, well, you have to do all this extra work in order to, to support somebody just because they might be, you know, black or Muslim or gay or trans or, you know, female because it's just being a woman in the workplace is, mm -hmm. is a rough enough thing right now. But you know what? That's, that's my work. That's the work that I have to do. And until I am in a system that does not put people under this pressure, then I have to support those people. Um, so I, I'd like to talk about something that you touched on that is very, very, very difficult. Um, but I, I think it's worth talking about because um, 
<laughs> quite often uh, in this world, uh, you can tell which is the correct argument by which one is more complex. Um, so uh, internal medicine, very, very, very complex. Homeopathy, very simple. Um, and homeopathy appeals to a lot of people because it's so simple. Um, and it seems so straightforward, like cures, like very, very straightforward. Um, but internal medicine is, is, uh, it, it, it can seem even to lack internal consistency. Um, because there are instances when a fever is good and there's instances where a fever is bad. Like the, there are so many, uh, it's, it's such a complex system and you can't just judge off a of complexity, but often complexity is the right way to understand something. So, uh, morality is just the same way. Often, uh, the correct moral standpoint is, uh, exhaustingly complex and the incorrect one is very easy to uh, understand and apply to every situation. So this is very complex. It's very morally exhausting, uh, but I think it's something that we need to talk about. Um, so uh, there is uh, a word, it's super irrigation. Do you know what this means? I have not heard that word before. Uh, I would wager that you have. Uh, did you watch the first uh, Star Trek uh, uh, redo or whatever they call it? The, fir the first new Star Trek movie? Yes. Um, at the very beginning of the movie, they use the word super irrigation. And in fact, young Spock's def uh, defines it as part of remember when he's in the bowl and doing like that yes, testing, yeah. he defines super irrigation. Um, and it's, it's cool. So super irrigation, uh, or, or a super erogatory action, uh, is an action that's morally praiseworthy, but not morally obligatory. So okay. that makes sense, right? You can kind of come up with some instances in your head. Um, there is, uh, a corollary to super irrigation and I, I don't know if it's ever been named, but, um, it is got I gotta be careful, but it's an action that is morally incorrect, but excusable. Okay. Uh, so, um, when you have this pervasive power imbalance, um, specifically between white people and black people. Um, there are instances when black people standing up for themselves, um, the, the morally praiseworthy thing would be, um, uh, nonviolent protest, um, uh, sit-ins, uh, you know, in, uh, in cafes uh, or, or at, at lunch counters, um, th that is a, a fantastic thing to do. And it is, um, snow white, right? It is, uh, it, it is, you cannot argue with the, with that. Um, but we cannot lock people into that, or we cannot say that that is the only reaction that we will accept. Um, and, yes. and this is mostly coming from, uh, Tina Fey's sheet cake sketch on SNL. Did you see that? 
I did not, but I have okay. heard some of the reaction to it. Yeah. So, so basically, she sits and eats a sheet cake and yells about uh, our current uh, political situation. And it was fantastic until the end when she said, um, when these uh, Nazi or, you know, neo Nazi uh, uh, protests happen, stay home, let them yell into the empty void. Um, and, and that is the most cowardly thing it, it is uh it it's a statement that is pretending to be a sit-in but instead it's something that is um uh it so, so <laughs> this, this is so difficult to express without saying something that is morally incorrect but you cannot you cannot expect or you cannot tell white people to not stand up for black people. Uh, you cannot tell white people to let other white people just scream into the void and pretend that they're not doing anything when they, when they are very clearly um, having an effect and they are, they're not ideally. Yes. Ideally it'd be great if we could all pretend like they're just two year olds and completely ignore them and not give them the press coverage. And that, that would be great, but that's, not possible. Um, they have the spotlight and, and moreover, it's not just the spotlight that they have. They have the violence and the imposition, right? It's not like if we ignore them, nothing will happen. Um, if, if we ignore them, uh, they will continue to do harm. Uh, they will continue to literally kill black people. Um, they will continue to literally kill white people who are standing up for black people. I mean, we, we just saw that at Charlottesville. Um, so uh, with that in mind, uh, you cannot jump to conclusions and say that when, uh, when a black person commits a violent act against a white person, if that white person is actively encouraging violent acts against the black person, yes, it's not, uh, it's not fantastic. Um, it's not the, the most perfect, uh, tie a bow on it solution, but you cannot jump to the conclusion that the the black person who has had enough and has stood up for themselves uh you you can't jump to the conclusion that that person um is completely morally bankrupt and has no value to their argument um yeah and there's the 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 milder version of that which oh, yes, I see please. Online. yeah give give me the milder version i oh, need no, that not the milder version of what you said but oh. the kind of the milder version of that same problem oh, which okay. is that it's tone policing mm and yes. it is somebody jumping into an argument that is, um, you know, often it's a person of color talking about their experience um, and talking about their experience that may be in an exasperated tone. Maybe they are talking about their experience and somebody comes and says, but you must teach me what I need to do in mm. order to make this better for you. And mm. they may respond, I don't have time to teach you. I'm not responsible for teaching you. Go teach yourself. Uh, perhaps they don't use the verb teach. And um, some, you know, some person who, like, 
has overheard this conversation, jumps in and says, hey, now, you don't have to get angry. Yes, yes. This person was just talking to yes. you. That kind of tone policing is actually just as harmful exactly. as the rest of this. Because what it is, is it's basically, you know, the my child just, you know, uh, raked me. I just shouted, ow, that hurts. And having, you know, say, you know, one a family member say, oh, don't be a baby. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to yell out when that happens. Well, now I have to just, I have to describe to you why it's important for me to yell out. And if it happens every single time, it can actually, it can be a lot worse than the original problem. It's like, I, I don't want to have to re-justify myself to you after every single instance of this. And I'm not even a person who's, you know, feeling this every single day. And so in this particular case with the online conversation, you have somebody who's just made your day a, a terrible day because they're, you know, having this argument with you. You respond as a, a human being responds. Then you have somebody else who, quite honestly, is in the same group as this original person, basically telling you that you can't even express frustration with this. You can't even feel what you're feeling and, you know, act out the way that any normal person would, would you know, be, uh, be seen to act out because you're not doing it right. If you stand up for yourself by going out and protesting, then you're not doing it right. If you stand up for yourself by taking, you know, physical action, because again, kind of like with Charlottesville, a lot of what was happening with the counter protesters is they were protecting, say, the synagogue or they were protecting mm -hmm. the people who mm -hmm. were, you know, being threatened. And so if you take up arms to, to, uh, to protect yourself or the people around you, then you're doing it wrong. If you stay home and didn't do those things, well, you're doing it wrong. If you go and vote, you're doing it wrong. If you cannot vote, you're doing it wrong. And they don't need any more of that. Mm -hmm. And we don't, quite honestly, we don't need to call that out. Mm -hmm. And so that's another one of those action items um, for a person like me sitting at home uh, with the internet overhearing a conversation and watching somebody who is a person of color or a woman in tech or, you know, a trans man or woman or, you know, somebody who has been basically beaten up um, either literally or figuratively over who they are uh, for years, expressing a strong opinion, maybe not in the perfect way. Don't pick that apart because mm -hmm. you don't get to. Mm -hmm. What you can do is listen, and quite honestly, if you see somebody else picking them apart, you can then take on what you're expecting that you know person to do the the person of color or whatever to do, and you can do that work. You can say it's like, well, the reason they're angry is because of all these things, and I will provide you with the links to the research that says that this is mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. And I will provide you with the story about this specific instance that has made everybody angry today. I will provide you with this podcast, <laughs> which will hopefully explain to you all of the things that you should be paying attention to. That That is what my work is. My work is not tone policing the person who is already having a bad day. Yeah, I, I would encourage everybody to have um, 
a bookmark folder. Um, I have one that's titled politics slash human rights. And every time I see somebody, um, who is, uh, uh, sexual or, uh, gender or racial minority, uh, saying something, uh, t- taking the emotional time and effort because it is emotional labor, uh, to explain something, um, I bookmark it and I give it a title that's easily readable, you know, like it's not uh medium.com hyphen username hyphen blog title. I give it, you know, a title, maybe a couple of uh, search terms or, you know, hashtags or whatever. And I'll go through and, and I'll save that. And I try my hardest when I see those issues coming up later to use this bookmark folder to throw information at people. So it's not even, Hey, let me the, um, uh, the white, you know, the middle-class white guy tell you what this person says. I'll go, Hey, here's somebody just like this person who was having a better day and went through all the issues that you're describing. Here's their voice. Here's what they're saying and, and point them at that. And, and, you know, like this is all really difficult stuff. Like this is, it's really tough to do this, but it's the right thing to do. Um, and it's, this isn't super irrigation, right? This isn't, uh, morally praiseworthy, but not morally obligatory. This is morally obligatory. You have to do this. And that's the other thing. You're you're not going to get any ally cookies just for doing this basic stuff. Oh yeah. And and don't expect them. Don't like say, Hey, look at me for doing all these, Uh you know, great. It's no, this is just what you need to do. This is the work now. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the worst part about all this is that um you don't get back pats for doing the right thing. Um one day uh when everybody's on the same level and somebody says something out of line and you you know correct them, then maybe you'll get back pats. But right now you cannot expect uh uh you know a Scooby snack for, for doing a very basic uh a very basic human service that everybody deserves. Um, and it, it really sucks. Um, but I'll tell you one thing as a white male, the amount of emotional labor that I am called upon to perform, uh, is much less than the emotional labor that my wife who's, I mean, she's a white woman, (laughs) but the emotional labor that my wife has to put forth on a daily basis because of her gender, uh, it, it, I mean, they don't compare, uh, we have it easy both ways. Just take on a little bit of work that yeah. that's all that this is doing. It's not even taking on all of the, all of the emotional labor, just take on your share. And that's, you know, that's what you're called upon to do. Mm-hmm.